Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we enter the New Testament and ask the question, what did Jesus believe about God? After all, whatever Jesus said on the matter is primary for us as Christ followers, right? As it turns out, Jesus not only believed the Shema, but strongly endorsed it as his core understanding of what's most important. Furthermore, he repeatedly spoke of the Father as my God. We'll also engage with the ideas of compound unity, as well as splitting the Shema in our effort to understand what Jesus taught about God. Here now is episode 414, One God, Part 4, Yahweh the God of Jesus. Number four, Yahweh, God of Jesus. Do you remember what Moses said about God when he was talking about, he was talking to the second generation, he was talking to them about what it was like when God came down and gave the Ten Commandments. Do you remember that? It's in Deuteronomy 4.35, Moses said, To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God, and there is no other besides Him. Out of heaven He let you hear His voice, that He might discipline you, and on earth He let you see His great fire, and you heard His words out of the midst of the fire. Know therefore today, verse 39, and lay it to your heart, that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath, there is no other. So this is, this is what Moses said to that second generation. Yahweh is our God, there is no other besides him. And that's why he had all these fireworks on display and all this extravagant power was to get that across to you, that he just like outperforms all the other so-called gods that are out there. I mean, he's just like the one God overall. And then... He taught them the Shema a couple chapters later, just in review here. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Altogether, that is the Shema of Israel, named for the first word there. The word here in Hebrew is Shema. So if you are talking to your friend or your kids or something and they're not listening to you, you say, Shema, Shema. He's listen up. Here, uh, and then in Isaiah, last time we saw Isaiah 45, 5, very similar verse. I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am Yahweh and there is no other. So these are very strong, what we call one God verses or monotheistic verses in the Old Testament. But now let's turn and look at Jesus. Because let's face it, I'm a Christian. So if Christ changes the rules, if Christ says, well, you know, we're going to do this other thing, I'm just going to go with Christ because I'm a Christian. And that's what it means to be a Christian is that you're, you follow Christ, that Jesus is our rabbi, right? So the question is, well, what did Jesus believe about God? Because whatever Jesus believed about God is what I want to believe about God. Did he say, well, guys, it's, it's complicated, disciples, you know, I don't know if you can grasp it, but like after about three centuries, we'll develop philosophical languages that can articulate how I am related to God. Did he say that? 
Did he say, uh, did you just affirm everything about God and then say, yeah, and I'm a second God next to the one God? What did he say about God? What did he believe? Uh, well, we don't have to guess. Jesus actually had a conversation with somebody about this very question, who is God and what's the most important of all? And so we, we get the answer for ourselves right there. Uh, it's Mark 12, 28. And we read, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So this section of Mark gives us a, a really good scoop on what Jesus thought. And so just to, to start things out, the scribe came up to Jesus. Jesus was engaged in dialogue, probably argument, with other people, Pharisees and scribes, people that were asking him their stumper questions and trying to trap him. Jesus answered them well. So this scribe came up because Jesus had answered them well. So this scribe, you have to, you have to keep in mind, this scribe is not antagonistic towards Jesus. He's just checking Jesus out, just like he would check any teacher out because he's a scribe and that's like what they do. That's fun. That's interesting. Oh, well, so what do you think is the, the most important thing? Let me ask you this, Rabbi. What's the most important commandment? It's a, that's like your stock question you ask somebody to see where they're at. You know, what is he going to say? So this guy, first of all, is not combative. He's curious, and there's a big difference. Because if Jesus encounters a combative person, he's not going to talk plainly most of the time. He's, he's going to talk in obscure terms and, and sometimes try to confound the person so they realize the error of their ways. But if he's talking to his disciples or to an honest onlooker, he's going to speak in a plain manner. And I think that's what's going on here. So the scribe says to him, what's the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered with the Shema. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the Shema. Jesus endorsed the Shema. They asked Jesus, what do you believe? Jesus said, well, I'm a Jew, so the Shema, duh. Oh, he didn't say it that way, but that's my impression of what's going on here. I mean, whoa, this is such a huge point. Jesus believed the same as what Moses taught, that here, Israel, the Lord our God, or Yahweh our God, the Lord is one. Now, I wonder if you have heard about compound unity. Sometimes you come across this, not so much in the commentaries or in the, the literature, but online and uh, talking with people. In fact, I just heard a debate, not even two days ago, where the one who was defending the Trinity said, well, that word that, G that we find in the Old Testament, in the Shema, 
That Hebrew word is echad, and that doesn't really mean one. It means unity. So what about compound unity? And then, uh, so they'll say, well, it, it means unity like one bunch of grapes. So this word echad is used in the Old Testament. When the spies went in, they came with one bunch of grapes to say, look, there's unity, there's plurality. Boom, it works. Or they'll say, the two will become one flesh, right? Echad must mean one, it must be compound unity. And then furthermore, they'll point out that there's another Hebrew word, yachid, and this Hebrew word means only. And this word is never used of God. Therefore, God must have compound unity, not just strict monotheistic, you know, the only one who is God. So I want to, I want to take this objection seriously. I want to take this uh, line of thinking seriously because uh, even though it's not so popular you know, in the academy, it is popular online. And uh, let's face it, a lot of us are influenced by what we see online. So what I did was I looked up the lexicon. I just looked up the word achad, which is the word for one in, in the Shema. I'll show you that in a second. But let's just look at the definition for Echad. Nice, simple, short definition. Just kidding. This is the definition of the word one in Hebrew, Echad, uh, from the Halot. The Halot is a Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, one of the very top Hebrew lexicons you can, you can buy. I'm not going to read this whole thing to you. It's, it's, you. Lexicons and dictionaries, they're highly abbreviated. If you unpack this and, and spelled everything out, it would go page after page after page. But uh, just, just to point out a few things. Definition one for achad, the word, the translated one, is the numeral one. That's definition one. So just like when you count numbers, achad, shtayim, shalosh, arba, in Hebrew it's one, two, three, four, right? Achad is the word for one when you count the numbers, the numeral one. And then it says right next to it there, makom achad, which means one place or a single place. So achad can mean single, not just one can mean a single place, one soul, one single person, and so on. Then, definition two. Oh, actually, before we get to definition two, check this out. In definition one of the word one in Hebrew, it actually mentions Deuteronomy 6.4. Does it get better than that? Like if the dictionary quotes your verse. Oh, and this is not a commentary. This is a dictionary. Okay, it's even better. So it says Deuteronomy 6.4. Y is uh, abbreviation for Yahweh, okay? Yahweh is one. Then they have in parentheses, Septuagint, Peshitta, Stata, Theologia, volume one, page 84. Alternative translation is the one Yahweh, or Yahweh alone, or Yahweh only. This is the dictionary. The dictionary is saying the word one means one, alone, or only does not say unity, does not, there's no compound. There's none of that. It's just the word one. So if you have one group of chairs, that's one thing with many subset of things in it, many parts in it. If you have one bubble, then there's no parts to a bubble. It's just a big circle, right? <laughs> so but you, you, just like the word one in English. All right, let's look at the other definitions. Never, definition number two, one another one to another, and so on. Definition three is the indefinite article. That's the word a or an in English. I have one pen. I have a pen. It's used just interchangeably. 
Definition four, ordinal, which means first. So it can either mean one or it can mean first. And number five is distributive, one in each tribe, one from each man, each single one, and so on. So that's the word echad in Hebrew, no compound unity. What about this word yachid in Hebrew? Well, Jerome said yachad is the, basically the same as achad. So yachad and achad are basically the same thing. These, these are not very different from each other. It means only or lonely, as in the only son or as in deserted. Okay, so let's, we got in the weeds there a little bit. Let's, let's look at these two side by side. We have Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, that's the Hebrew. We translate that into English as, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. So this word one is Echad. And then we see over here in Mark 12, 29, that Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You see the difference, right? Jesus had substituted in Lord for Yahweh. And, you know, since it's recorded in Greek, the word one there is is instead of echad, or if you want the Dutch pronunciation, heis instead of echad. But, uh, you know, it's the same thing. The Jewish people had stopped saying the name of God because of whatever reason. You know, there's speculations about why. Maybe it was too holy or something. And so they said Lord instead of Yahweh. But look, if you're a Jewish person in the first century like Jesus and you're talking to another Jewish person like this scribe, everybody knows what's going on. Like if they say Adonai, that's the word for Lord, they know they're talking about Yahweh. You know what I mean? They, we, don't, we might not know that as 20 centuries later, different continent, different language, different culture. We might not, but they know it. You know, just like if, if we're talking to each other, we know what we're what we're talking about. We have the shared context. But what did the scribe say? Because I suggest to you that the scribe's response to Jesus gives us the key to understanding this. Jesus said, Mark 12, 29, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 32, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. So the scribe heard Jesus say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he processed it and then said to Jesus, he is one and there is no other besides him. That's how the scribe understood the Shema. That's how he understood Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, you idiot, how could you interpret it that way? Does he? Does Jesus condemn the scribe? Does he say you're clueless or you're almost kind of on the right track? I don't think so. We'll see that in a second. But the scribe here is quoting Deuteronomy 4.35. Deuteronomy 4.35 is where it says, there is no other besides him. I quoted to you before we got into this because I knew that it was going to be coming up. So the scribe is, is you know, he's hearing Deuteronomy 6.4 and he's like, yeah, Deuteronomy 4.35. And, and, and Jesus is just like, yeah, you answered wisely. Verse 34, and when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So the scribe is identifying this one God, this, this Lord that Jesus says is one. He's identifying that one God as the one, and there's no other besides him. So one God over all. 
if you have somebody beside you, you're not over all, are you? You have somebody else beside you, right? That makes sense. And so Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't set him straight. Jesus doesn't say, well, gosh, you just don't even know about compound unity, man. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even tell a parable to clarify. Jesus would do that. He would sometimes tell parables to confuse and other times to clarify, depending on what the need was. Here's something else to consider. Mark, who wrote this gospel, will sometimes add in parenthetical remarks. He'll sometimes add in a little clarification about something that explains the theology of it, for example. Like if Jesus is just having a conversation with somebody, you see a little parenthesis, it's probably Mark giving a little explanation for it. He could have done that here. Mark could have written here, now Jesus said this about his human nature, but after his resurrection, we understood that he had a divine nature as well. He did not do that. He did not insert that comment here. Everything is just as it is, as we see it here. Jesus, here's the point that I'm trying to make. I'm laboring at this, so, so please, please, uh, please listen up. Jesus and the scribe, agree on who God is. That's my point. The scribe says, what's the most important commandment? Jesus says, there's one God. You love him with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. The scribe says, yeah, he's one. There's no other besides him. And to love him and love others is better than all the sacrifices. And Jesus says, well, you've answered wisely. Uh, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus is talking about, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about his own identity. He's talking about himself as being the Messiah, the king of the kingdom. But wait, there's more. Mark 10, 17 is another incident. It says, And he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What's going on here? Now, some say that Jesus is challenging this stranger to believe that he really is God. And that if he's going to call him good, he should also accept that he is God. If that's what, if that's what Jesus is really doing here, he failed. We have to admit that. Because as the conversation goes on, the guy doesn't pick up what Jesus is putting down. You know, that's clear. Because he just rolls right into, you know, well, you know the commandments. And he says, I kept the commandments for my youth. You know, there's no conversation about who Jesus is after this moment. And this is very misleading for many others who read it down the line through the years. And again, you have Jesus in the conversation, but you also have Mark. who Mark can put in, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, a comment that says what he meant was da 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 He could do that if there's, a, if there's a reason that we're misunderstanding it. But if you just read it as it is, somebody comes up to you or somebody comes up to someone else and says, Hey, good, uh, good teacher. And the person says, why you call me good? There's only one good. That's God. You don't take that as like challenging them to believe you're God. You take it as saying, I'm not the ultimate source of goodness. Now, Jesus is good, but he's not good in the way God is good. Because God is the standard. Robert H. Stein, a Markin scholar, put it this way. Jesus is contrasting God's absolute goodness to his own, which is subject to growth. God's goodness is the source of everything. It's the standard for everything. Jesus, I don't want you to think Jesus was bad, okay? But he's not good in the same way that God is good. Jesus knows that there is a God and that he is not him. Uh, John 20 is another one of these where Jesus talks about his God. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus has a God. Whose God is Jesus' God? It's the Father. It's the same God as Mary's God. It's the same Father as the disciples' Father. On the cross, Jesus says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is, is calling out, saying, my God, my God. Revelation 3, 2. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. This is Jesus speaking. And this isn't just Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus in the Galilee region, walking along a dusty road. This is exalted, ascended at the right hand of God, Jesus, sending a message to the churches. This is like Jesus upgraded far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but that which is to come, Jesus. This is that Jesus. And he's still saying, your works aren't very good in the sight of my God. He still has a God, even in his exalted position. Revelation 3.12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God, out of heaven in my own new name. Once again, my point is Jesus has a God. All right, so in the roughly 10 minutes left, I'd like to look at one section with you is from 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. This is an important section for this whole conversation of one God overall, and how does Jesus fit in that? And uh, there have been some different things said about it, so I thought we could address it a little bit. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, hmm, we were just talking about that last time, weren't we? Eating food to idols, idolatry, the prophets, God using all this language, this loaded emotional language. Well, Paul's working with some Christians in Corinth. And guess what? There's idols everywhere. So do you eat the food? Do you go to the festival? Do you, how much can you do and how much can you not do? That's the question. So he's clarifying that. He says once again, verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Wait a second. What did that sound like to you? It sounded like the Shema, right? It sounded like Deuteronomy 4 or chapter 6, one of those, or Isaiah. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, for Christians, there is what? One God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, back, way back in the year 1980, a famous scholar named James D.G. Dunn wrote a book called Christology in the Making. It's one of the most significant. Christology is your understanding of Christ. It's a book just dedicated to like figuring out who was, who was Christ theologically. It's written at a very scholarly level. But in it, he says something very foolish in my estimation. In fact, I, was, I would even say offensive. I would even call it offensive. And I like James Dunn for the record. I think most of his stuff is pretty good. Uh, but this is what he said about 1 Corinthians 8.6. He says, First, he, Paul, asserts that Christ the Lord also is one. Thereby, he splits the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Jewish confession of monotheism between 
God the Father and Christ the Lord in a way that has no earlier parallel. What? Are you kidding me? You're going to split the Shema? You're going to take the Shema and split it? Go tell that, go, go tell that to Jeremiah while he's watching the city burn. While he's ministering to the people because they messed around with the Shema. They say, oh yeah, yeah, it's Yahweh, okay, he's our God, okay. I'm going to go over here and worship Chemosh for a little while. He's literally, Jeremiah's watching the city burn because they didn't keep the Shema. Or what about Ezekiel, who's, who's over there, and he's got all this prophecy coming through him. It, it, you know, you see Ezekiel in the resurrection, and you're like, hey, Zeke, buddy, love the book. Love the book. Chapter 16, incredible, incredible. There's some stuff you didn't understand. You have to, you have to realize, Paul, he, he, he was born like centuries after you, a long time after you. He split the Shema. At which point Ezekiel's like, I'm out. I'm out. We already split the Shema. We got in trouble. Everything was destroyed. There's no, there's no splitting the Shema. It reminds me of, uh, or Hosea. Imagine Hosea, right? He lived that whole life married to that terrible woman. And you come along and like, well, you know, it's a little, just a little adjustment. A little adjustment? I didn't go through all that for a little adjustment. It reminds me of the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's an old movie. Maybe some of you have seen it. But it's a really scary scene. I don't recommend watching it, to be honest. I was, I was too young when I saw it, and it, it messed me up. But there's this shaman guy with this big skull and bones hat that he's wearing. And there's this ritual sacrifice of this innocent guy. And the guy, the shaman guy, reaches his hand into the guy's chest, and it like magically goes in, and he rips out his heart and is beating in his hand. That's what you're doing. If you mess with the Shema, that's what you're doing. You're going into Scripture and you're ripping the heart out of Scripture. That's the Shema. It's the heart, it's the creed, it's the core, it's the center. It's what the Jews live by, it's what they die by, it's what Jesus, first thing he said, the scribe asked, what's the most important thing? First thing he said, if, you, if you're saying it in Hebrew, the very first word would be Shema, Yisrael. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the first thing he would say. It's the heart. You don't rip the heart out of Scripture. Even if you're James D.G. Dunn. And you've got all kinds of fans and followers. He's actually uh, recently deceased. It's kind of sad. but Another man named Richard Balkum wrote something similar. He said, Paul, he, is redefining monotheism. You don't redefine monotheism. Monotheism means belief in one God. There's nothing to redefine. If you believe in more than one God, it's not monotheism anymore. Now it's polytheism. Uh, he goes on, the only possible way, the only possible way, because I found another possible way. I'll share with you in a minute. The only possible way to understand Paul as maintaining monotheism is to understand him to be including Jesus in the unique identity of the one God affirmed in the Shema. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That doesn't even make sense. The unique, look, your identity is like your name, right? So like Eduardo's your name. You can't include another person in your identity. It doesn't even make sense. You can include another identity in the same body if you sew two people together or something, right? That's possible, but that's not what he's saying here. He's saying you include 
the unique identity of the one God. You include Jesus in the unique, it's just, just befuddling. James McGrath, I think, is a little more helpful. He says, the main, this is his book, The Only True God, the main difficulty with the view that Paul has split the Shema. And this, this by the way, was written in 2009. So in 1980, Don came out with this language. He's splitting the Shema. You know, he's, 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 he's shoving Jesus in there. And the scholars have been going nuts about this for decades. You know, they, they, they're either like, yeah, he split it, or you can't split it. You know, there's all this debate. So in 2009, James McGrath writes, the main difficulty with the view that Paul has split the Shema is that it does not do justice to the nature of the Shema itself. The Shema reads, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. It would be very difficult for Paul to distinguish between God in the Shema as referring to the Father, and Lord in the Shema as referring to the Son, since the Shema clearly identifies Lord and God. The fact of the matter is that Paul does not say, Paul does not say, there is one God who is both Father and Son. He says, rather, that there is one God and also one Lord. He's not messing with the Shema. Paul himself is a Jew. He's not going to mess with the Shema. There are other things that are also important besides the Shema. Jesus himself said, love your neighbor as yourself. That's not the Shema. That's from Leviticus. So you can add to the Shema. Go ahead. Go ahead. Add to it. Don't subtract from it. Don't multiply it or divide it. (laughs) But you can add to it. That's fine. All right. Back to, uh, or actually, hold on. No, I want to show you this. So this is the same guy I started with. I was was a little harsh on uh, James Dunn. But in 2010... He wrote another book, Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? That's an interesting book title, right? Did the First Christians Worship Jesus? And this is what he said. So this is 30 years after his first book on the subject. For the question arises as to whether Paul did indeed intend to split the Shema. It is quite possible to argue, alternatively, that Paul took up the Shema, already quoted in 8.4, There is no God but one, only in the first clause of 8.6, reworded as, for us there is one God the Father, and to that added the further confession, and one Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! Dunn saw the light before he died. (laughs) Or at least he perceived the possibility of the alternative before he died. All right, let's go back to it, because you probably don't even know what 1 Corinthians 8.6 says anymore, since I quoted all this other stuff at you. 1 Corinthians 8.6, very simple. Yet for us... There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You see it? There's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. The solution to understanding this, just like understanding anything in the Bible, is to read it in light of their own times. What would people in Corinth be thinking? People in Corinth are mostly, the church there, They're mostly non-Jewish. They're mostly Gentiles. You know what Gentiles do? They worship lots of gods. This is not a problem for them. If Paul says there's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're not going to be like, oh, no, you didn't. No, they're just going to be fine with it. If if Paul says to them there's one God and three persons, it's not like the people in Corinth are going to be like, oh, wow, that's just mind-boggling. No, they love Gnosis. They love knowledge. They love Sophia. They love wisdom. They love the nerdy stuff. This is like that church, right? If Paul wanted to go there... This is the group with whom he could do it. No question. They could handle it, and they would brag about it all day and how enlightened they are. You know, they love esoteric stuff. 
But he didn't. Paul didn't say there's one God the Father and Jesus Christ himself the same God. What did he say? He said there's one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what was going on in the city? Well, Kenneth Bailey says that what Paul's doing here is he's quietly denying the cult of the empire. See, the standard phrase that you say in a Roman colony like Corinth is Caesar is Lord. That's the allegiance. And so here is Paul. He's not redefining monotheism. He's not splitting the Shema. What is he doing? He's challenging Caesar. That's what he's really doing. The one God, the Father, would not have been controversial at all. But as soon as you start talking about the L word, if they're used to saying Caesar is Lord, and he's saying, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. there's one Lord. Jesus, Messiah. Messiah is a political title. It means Messiah or King. So there's one God, the Father. Well, let's back it up. Let's back it up. I'll just finish up here. Therefore, as to the eating of food, verse 4, offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. He says that. We know that. There's only one God. He already just said that. Verse 5, For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Does it make sense? All right, let's review. Number one, I've got seven points. Number one, Jesus and the Jewish scribe agreed that the Shema defines who God is. Number two, the word echad means one, not compound unity. Number three, the scribe interpreted the Lord is one to mean, quote, He is one and there is no other besides Him, end quote. Number four, Jesus denied that He was good in the way that God is good. Number five, Jesus identified His God as the Father, the same as Mary's God. Number six, even in His exalted condition, Jesus recognized that He still has a God. And number seven, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 adds, not splits, not changes, adds, a confession that Jesus is Lord Messiah to the Shema without splitting it. So next time we're going to delve more into who Jesus is. We haven't really been talking about who Jesus is. We're talking about who did Jesus say his God is. Right? So next time we'll look at who Jesus is and explore what does it mean that he's the anointed one? What does it mean that he's the Messiah? How does that stand in as a satisfying identity for Jesus of Nazareth? As we continue in our class, one God overall. Well, this brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and leave your feedback, your questions, your comments on episode 414, Yahweh, the God of Jesus. I wanted to mention that last weekend we had our first ever Unitarian Christian Alliance conference and I had a great time there. Got to meet a lot of people for the first time and rekindle relationships with people that I haven't seen in quite a few years. So it was, it was a really rewarding event to attend. And I really appreciate the hard work of Dale Tuggy spearheading this event, as well as Stacy Berger, the event coordinator. I think they did a great job. I helped out a little bit here and there in the planning, but uh, my goodness, they really did put on a first class event. Uh, now, if you didn't get a chance to go, as uh, somebody commented in on the episode last week, 
uh, I believe it was Sarah, who said, will this conference be recorded or podcasted live for those who can't physically make it to Tennessee? And I replied to her, yes, Sarah, the event was professionally recorded. I'm not sure when the presentations will be made available. I know that we're planning on a staggered release rather than dumping them all at once on the YouTube channel. As far as putting out the content on Rest Studio, uh, I might be able to get my own audio and put that out, but uh, I think really the the majority of the material will be made available through UC, official UCA channels. Uh, so yeah, if you're not already subscribed, go on over to YouTube and subscribe to the Unitarian Christian Alliance. If you're not already a member, raise your hand, stand up and be counted and register. You can register for free at the UCA website, UnitarianChristianAlliance.org. And if you feel moved to support this ministry of the Unitarian Christian Alliance, as quite a few people are already, but uh, the more that we can bring in, the more we can do, the more we can make a dent in the world for this truth. Uh, yeah, go ahead and go ahead and sign up, or if you're already giving, uh, why not go to the next level of giving uh, for the Unitarian Christian Alliance? I know I sound like a commercial, but hey, I believe in the cause, and I'm not getting paid to say this. <laughs> in fact, uh, I'm a total volunteer when it comes to UCA stuff, but I'm happy to do it. So uh, just wanted to mention that. Had a great time. I presented on the topic, The Father is Greater Than I, Exploring Biblical Subordination. I wrote a 24-page paper and uh, released that on restitudio.org so that you can read it if you like. Hopefully, we'll get that video and audio before too long. And Joe Martin wrote in saying, Very biblical, scholarly, and professional. The best I've seen on the subject. Thank you so much. This will be a great resource for future generations. Uh, really, when I did the paper and then the subsequent presentation, I did not have Unitarian believers in mind when I was writing or speaking. I wrote and spoke from a perspective of the person reading it as a Trinitarian and working from within that system of thought to explore this idea of subordination. And that is these many texts that say the Father is greater than the Son, or the Son says I can do nothing of my own, or especially the text about how the Son will be in subjection to the Father for eternity, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. So just exploring these texts and then looking at what standard Trinitarian theology says about these verses and so I get into the whole concept of the economic trinity, which is really important if you're going to engage with Trinitarians on this subject, because that is their number one defense, distinguishing between the imminent and the economic trinity, and explaining that it was only because of the incarnation, because of the act of redemption, that the Son is temporarily subordinate, temporarily inferior to the Father. And so I explore that. And then we get into the whole idea of permanent subordination as expressed by Wayne Grudem and look at his whole case and how Keith Yandel, as well as others, have disproved the idea that you can have necessary role subordination eternally that is not grounded in nature or ontology. I know that's a little bit complicated, but look, that's just the nature of the material. So check out the paper if you are interested in that subject and then I do go through a bunch of these co-equality texts and groups of texts and ways of thinking. So, for example, Philippians 2, it says, Jesus did not regard equality 
with God something to be grasped, or Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be exploited. Depending on which way you go on that one, you have equality or not. Uh, what about John 5.18, where it says he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God? Or John 10.30, I and my father are one. So going through, I think I went through about seven different classifications of texts, or the creation text as well, that where it applies creation language to Jesus. So I go through a bunch of those and offer incredibly brief responses, you know, like a paragraph or two, uh, but lots of footnotes. So if you are interested in researching any of those, you will be able to do that and have access to a number of sources. I know long theological essays are not everyone's preferred medium for consuming content of this nature, but there is a place for written materials, and uh, I, I do about one of these a year, one of these scholarly essays, and uh, hopefully academics will come across this and that it will, in fact, get them thinking, at least. Or maybe even just the minimum is help them understand where we're coming from, that we're not weirdos, that we're not just dis- dismissing Scripture, we're not just ignorant of standard Trinitarian theology that 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 handles subordination texts but uh, that we really do have a case and that the Bible's on our side. Uh, So I think that's really important. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next week. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.